The Tom Sumner Program. Old fashioned radio for a new generation. Oh, it's always a pleasure to be with you, Tom. You know that. Yay, Tom! I love it in Flint! You're very astute, Tom. Not an easy question. I'll debate Andy Dillon on your show. Well, uh, that's a very good question. Uh, Hello, darling. This is Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, with Tom Sumner. I'm all right, Tom. How are you? Hey, lucky day, Mr. Sumner. Ciao, Tom. How are you today? <laughs> Hi, this is actor, comedian Jonah Pody, and you're listening to the Tom Snyder, uh, Tom Smothers. Uh, I mean, I'm sorry, what's his name? Oh, Sumner. The Tom Sumner Program. Good morning, Tom. How are you doing? Hey, at least I got the Tom part right. The Tom Sumner Program. Old-fashioned radio for a new generation. This is Mayor Sheldon Neely, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Show. Hey, welcome back, everybody, uh, as we roll into uh, the second half of this week's edition of Armchair Politics, our weekly roundtable on the Tom Sumner program, and joining me for today's edition of Armchair Politics, our panel of political pundits includes our roundtable regulars on the left, Flint's premier political pundit, Paul Rosicki. Paul, welcome back. Always good to be here. And on the right, longtime Genesee County Republican Henry Hatter. Henry, welcome back to you as well. Thank you. And last but not least, uh, joining the roundtable this week, former high-ranking government official in two presidential administrations, Mark Everson. And Mark, it's always a pleasure to have you. Welcome back. Nice to be here. Um, an informant in the alleged plot to kidnap Governor Gretchen Whitmer acknowledged suggesting that a gunshot be fired into her northern Michigan home. He said it was better than killing the governor as others wanted. <laughs> the informant, Dan Chappell, on Monday faced uh, question, uh, questioning attorneys um, or faces questioning by attorneys who have blamed the government and paid informants um, that pushed the investigation. Chapel 35 acknowledged that he drove others to the area near the governor's summer home um, in Elk Rapids in the fall of 2020. Besides paying for gas, he bought lunch and drinks before a reconnaissance mission. He also said uh, that he sent a text suggesting to another participant that a bridge near the governor's home could be blown to uh, show uh, to slow, rather, police response. He told others they would put eyes on the Elk Rapids house as part of the plotting. Chapel said he mentioned shooting into the empty home or blowing it up as a de-escalation of Adam Fox's plan to kidnap and kill the governor. Chapel, a contract truck driver for the U.S. Postal Service, said he became an informant after a militia he joined, Wolverine Watchmen talked about killing police officers. He told Fox's attorney, Christopher Gibbons, that he was just an average guy trying to earn the trust of those plotting to kill the governor. <laughs> Gibbons said Chapel ignored... Uh, well, I was going to say, are we at the X-Files already? <laughs> no, but boy, it's, sure it's, it's like awful it. close. Gibbons, Real theater. <laughs> yeah. Gibbons said Chapel ignored admonitions from the FBI about taking part in the group's planning. Uh, after all of this, um, 
and and with some of the stories that have come out about this, uh, talking about entrapment and all kinds of other things about the people that were working with investigators, are the methods of law enforcement officers and the informants assisting them jeopardizing the case they're trying to make? Hmm. From what, from what, it doesn't sound like it from what I've heard. Now, again, I have not followed every last detail of the case. But the defense but attorneys are, are really pushing this they notion are, yeah, true. that, that the, the people that infiltrated the group became the instigators. Yeah, I don't know. You never know. I mean, all you got to do is raise that reasonable doubt. I suppose that's a possibility. But uh, you, you hear about these plots, and what a, what a crazy scenario. Uh, yeah, I. Uh, and it's by people who have a <clears throat> little culture in uh, making these kind of uh, huge plots, bringing them together. It requires people of tactics who have learned tactics to do this. These are truck drivers from UPS and cab drivers and so on and so forth. So. Um, well, remember the characterization from last week, guys, uh, that that talked about some of these people that participated in in this planning. That um, their own defense attorneys were um, basically characterizing them as drunk rabble rousers with no <laughs> yeah, uh, no real plan, no real strategy, <laughs> and having committed no real crime. Yeah, I, I'm well, not sure. This you can't convict me I was drunk is going to... Uh, maybe they don't know any better. <laughs> maybe they don't know any better. Go ahead, Mark. An hour ago, we were talking about uh, soon-to-be justice in the Supreme Court. This is, you know, these are real issues. Uh, entrapment, how the government conducts itself, uh, where it gets its information and brings something together. Uh, yeah, this is colorful, but I think these are real issues is all I would say. And... Uh, the government's been very effective. You think of how many people have been arrested on terrorism charges before the fact, and, and you know, we haven't had a 9-11-like incident or anything really serious in the country in a, in a, in a long time, in part because of pretty aggressive uh, techniques to infiltrate or talk. Or, and, but there's a line here, and, and uh, I, 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 I'm, I read about that case periodically. It's... Uh, as you say, colorful, but there's a real balance here, and that is a, why we have a Supreme Court, frankly, to sort through what is what the government is allowed to do and what it's not allowed to do in terms of investigating these things. Yeah, that's that's my concern, Mark. Is if law enforcement, you know, in their enthusiasm and their craftiness, if they're not shooting themselves in the foot a little bit, because you know these cases, even if they if they win them in the lower courts, they get tossed because of these uh, uh, strategies that get used. Well, exactly. And, and you draw these, you do, you do have to draw lines as to what the government can do. I remember I was uh, surprised. I was summoned to uh, um, uh, be on a jury in Indianapolis. I don't know when it was, 10 years ago or a little more or something like that. But I, ha I was totally convinced that I would get knocked out in the questioning because one, I you know, work for the Justice Department, so I'd run the IRS. And then secondly, I have a, I had a sister who was the victim of a serial murderer. So there's a lot of you know red flags there maybe, but 
in the end, the the uh, defense attorney asked me a question. He said, he made reference to all the government service. He said, do you think that uh, you can be impartial on this? And I, I, I answered, I said, look, I am of the belief that the government usually, but not always, gets it right. And um, that's how I approach these issues. And in the end, he didn't knock me out. I was shocked. He said, that was good, and good enough, but... but these, these, you don't want governmental power to be intrusive, and uh, that's what we're talking about here, really. Can you imagine uh, this incident, the impact that it had on that truckers' movement that was moving throughout the United States and Canada and creating <clears throat> some kind of issue? That oh, we talked. Uh, we talked about that a little bit last yeah. last week. Um, yeah. Because of uh, an interview I had done with uh, the chief legal counsel for uh, Esquire Digital, and he was talking about, uh, you know, some of the the emergency powers things up in Canada because he covers things in the states and in Canada. And he told me the funniest thing, and I shared it with the guys last week. And I want to share it for Mark's benefit. He said there were Canadian truckers complaining when the emergency powers were being invoked in Canada, that um, their constitutional rights were being violated (laughs) and what happened to their freedom of speech. (laughs) And they're Canadian citizens. (laughs) Now that just gives you an idea of how erudite these guys who plan to kill the government, how erudite their plans were. But... (laughs) You know, Trump wanted to make uh, get Greenland. We could, might have, he might have thrown uh, Canada into as an right. Well, here's here's one, and and I think I saw something uh, on CNN's website about this same situation going on in some other states. But county and local election fi- uh, officials will see eight million dollars in extra funding for additional election security measures for the 2022 election. The Department of State announced Monday the Michigan Bureau of Elections is making available eight million dollars in federal grant funding in response to a letters sent by the Association of Municipal and County Clerks asking lawmakers for additional funding as well as to, quote, put politics aside, unquote, to pass procedural changes that they say would benefit clerks. The federal dollars will pay for improvements to the physical security of election locations, uh, purchase and upgrade technology and networks used to support election administration and procure services and personnel to help make elections secure. My question is what caught my eye about this particular version of this story going on in Michigan is um, is politics ever put aside during elections? <laughs> I think that's what elections are all about. Uh, Only yeah. in a fascist government yeah. well, do you put aside the politics. Yeah, I I do like the idea, though. I mean, frankly, I think the election processes ought to be supported by the government, and the idea of having private concerns to step in or give donations for an election process is probably not a good idea. I mean, I know it was an issue the last time around, and you know, even though I sort of agreed with some of the folks to think they did, I, I think it's not a good idea to have private concerns primarily no. funding elections. Not, not because it's required for ta- by tax dollars. 
to do that. Yeah, you know, you can't commingle private funds with with uh, tax dollars in no way. But you did have some foundations last time doing that, and as I say, even though there was a lot made about it, and I don't think anything terrible happened, but still, it's not a good idea in the long run. I don't think. No. Well, I I suspect that it's done fairly often until somebody doesn't like it. <laughs> I guess that's, that's probably that's true. That's true. Yeah. Then all of a sudden the rules matter. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, how, uh, well, we just got a couple of minutes before we go to break, so I'll squeeze one more in here, and then we'll we'll move. Uh, on to Washington. House Democrats are calling for a bipartisan investigation into the allegations of ethical failings and misconduct against former Republican State House Speaker Lee Chatfield, but Republicans aren't interested. A spokesperson for House Speaker Jason Wentworth, a Republican from Farwell, said Monday that the House will continue to cooperate with law enforcement agencies as needed. Is a state house investigation appropriate since Chatwell is no longer a member? You would think it. Uh, you'd have to find another avenue to handle that case. But, but the Michigan State Police are already investigating. Yeah, 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 yeah. But uh, they're not under the jurisdiction of the house, are they? Or the what governmental agency? Um, <clears throat> it's responsible yeah, it, for doing the investigation together and executing it. It's not just simply the mis, uh, Michigan State Police because well, they have to involve the someone a, else. That ra- actually uh, raises an interesting question because my guess is that they're part of the administrative branch, the the governor's mm. uh, team. That could be. And and uh, so I guess there's a case to be made that you know each. Uh, um, branch of government can launch its own investigation if they want, um, but it just. But seems it does seem unusual to, for for an ex-member to be investigated in that way. Yeah, yeah. If, yeah. If, if, uh, it does. Go ahead, Mark. I'm, I, I'm. I don't know the details here, but I'm troubled by this. Um, your sanction, typically, if you're in a legislative uh, body, is to expel somebody. That's the most serious thing you can do, or impeach him. I am troubled by revisiting things after the, you know, after the the fact when the, somebody's gone. The executive branch can look at anything that may be criminal, um, and of course, there are civil uh, actions that citizenry can take, uh, depending on whether they've been harmed uh, by some something that shouldn't have taken place, but. Uh, you know, every, everything goes on and on. How are you ever going to get good people to serve in public? <laughs> if, if exactly. Years after they've left a job, somebody can go after them for decisions or things they did. I, and, I'm again, I would hasten to say I'm not familiar with the specifics here, but as a general rule, I'm concerned with the never-ending. Accountability is essential. You need more accountability. But it's not an endless process. That's what I would say. Okay, well, we're going to take a uh, short break. When we come back, we're going to talk about uh, uh, 
Ukraine and and uh, and some national politics when armchair politics continues with our roundtable regulars Paul Rosicki and Henry Hatter joined by Mark Everson we'll let our broadcast partners squeeze a few words in or do whatever they do when we go to break if you're streaming us at TomSumnerProgram.com we have some messages as well so don't touch that dial don't click that mouse we'll be right back hello darling this is Elvira Mistress of the Dark with Tom I'm Julie Lopez with Crime Stoppers. Have you ever wondered what to do if you have information about a crime or the whereabouts of a felony fugitive and you want the police to know but you need to remain anonymous? Well, here's what you can do. You can go to p3tips.com or download the mobile app. You can go to Crime Stoppers of Flint and Genesee County's Facebook page and click on the Leave an Anonymous Tip tab, or you can call 1-800-422-JAIL. All methods are anonymous, and if your help leads to a felony arrest, you may be eligible for a cash reward. Remember, your voice matters. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention is working to help keep you and your community safe from the threat of novel or new coronavirus. If you have traveled to a country with a widespread outbreak of COVID-19, CDC recommends you stay home and check your health for 14 days after returning to the United States. Take your temperature with a thermometer two times a day. Watch for symptoms like fever, cough, and trouble breathing. And if you feel sick or have symptoms, call ahead before you go to a doctor's office or emergency room. Tell the doctor about your recent travel and your symptoms, and avoid contact with others. For more information, visit cdc.gov. Hey, this is Tom from the Tom Sumner Program. Catch me and a gaggle of great guests weekdays on Our Voices Radio, WFOVLP 92.1 FM. You never know who might drop by. Joe Biden from the Blue Hawaiian. Dan Serling. Congressman Dan Kildee. Alexander Zondrick. Actor, comedian Joe Napote. Woodrow Stanley. U.S. Senator Debbie Stabenow. State Senator Jim Annan. Comedian Brian McCree. The unknown comic. Mark Farner. And Tom, I want you to know Tom's my friend. You know, you've always got great questions, and you know the material, and you, and you care about it, and it's uh, it's that's impressive. Nice to be with you, Tom. And I admire you for reading all of that. I haven't read the whole thing. I've got willing to admit that. <laughs> hey, Tom. This is my favorite interview always. You, you, <laughs> it's like having coffee at the kitchen table with you. Tune in Monday through Friday from 9 to 12 right here on 92.1 of a Kind. And check out our website at TomSumnerProgram.com. Yo, speaking. Oh, dear. Honey, our car warranty is expiring again. So soon? It just expired last week. You don't even own a car! Not now, Dana. Your father's on the phone. Hey! Mom and Dad, you're being scammed! It's a robocall! Scammers are using new technology and clever tactics to make more and more calls that look legitimate, but are hard to trace. They can make it look like they're calling from any number, even from numbers of people you know. My robocall crackdown team is working with state and federal partners to stop the robocalls for good, but I need your guys' help. Don't trust your caller ID. Verify you're really talking to the person whose number appears when your phone rings. If you accidentally answer a robocall, hang up right away. Engaging in conversation will only lead to more calls. Use a call blocking app on your cell phone that stops robocalls before they interrupt your day. 
And if you do get a robocall, file a complaint with my office online at mi.gov slash robocalls. And mom, dad, please do not give your information out to these scammers over the phone. They're just trying to trick you. Well, at least they call. No, I get it, you're busy. But you know Janine's daughter is a doctor. She calls every week. A doctor. I'm Michigan Attorney General Dana Nessel. Visit mi.gov slash agcomplaints for your connection to consumer protection. Hello, this is State Senator Jim Ananick, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. And welcome back, everybody. Armchair Politics continues on the Tom Sumner Program with our roundtable regulars, Paul Rosicki and Henry Hatter, joined by Mark Everson. Um, a U.S. Capitol riot suspect who fled the United States has been granted refugee status in Belarus, according to Belarusian state-owned television, BellTA. The California man, Evan Newman, went to Europe after being charged in connection with the January 6, 2021 attack on the U.S. Capitol. Newman initially settled in Ukraine. Oops. Um, <laughs> he, he said in an interview in November, but he claims he traveled to Belarus on foot after noticing that Ukrainian authorities were following him. Today I have mixed feelings, Newman told Beltier uh, yesterday. I am glad Belarus took care of me. I am upset to find myself in a situation where I have problems in my own country. Beltier uh, wrote on social media that Newman had been forced to leave the U.S. because of politically motivated charges. Uh, Beltier also posted images of Newman with a government official shaking hands and holding his new travel documents. A federal grand jury in Washington indicted Newman in December on 14 charges, including assaulting a police officer and engaging in physical violence on Capitol grounds. Newman is accused of punching two officers at the Capitol on January 6th and using a metal barricade as a battering ram to strike officers trying to stop the mob. Newman does not have a lawyer, according to court records. As recently as two weeks ago, the court listed him as a fugitive. Uh, what do you think would happen to Newman's uh, refugee status if he punched a couple Belarusian cops? <laughs> right. <laughs> Yeah, they can have this guy. I, it's fine. Let them have him. <laughs> yeah. Right. Uh, You're welcome. He's got his due process. Siberia. Yeah, he has his due process. Well, it's yeah. just it just seems weird to see Americans being accepted for refugee status anyway. True. That, that just that just I, I I couldn't help including it. There really isn't much to say about it it just struck me as as odd in fact paul i think you were on the right track here a few stories back when you said are we in the x-files already <laughs> yeah I, I was thinking the very same thing as you're reading that story too it's almost another x-files story well and and here's yeah. another one that's that's kind of a, a an x-file tease a federal judge on Tuesday found Cooey Griffin, a founder of Cowboys for Trump and the second January 6th defendant to go on trial as part of the Justice Department's massive prosecution, guilty of trespassing on U.S. Capitol grounds while Vice President Mike Pence was there. 
Griffin, a conspiracy theorist who also serves as a county commissioner in New Mexico, was acquitted of a second misdemeanor charge of disorderly and disruptive conduct. Griffin argued that he led others in prayer at the Capitol that day. <laughs> Judge Trevor McFadden issued the ruling after a sometimes contentious bench trial that began Monday and ended midday Tuesday. Griffin faces a potential fine, probation, or jail time up to one year after being found guilty of entering and remaining in a restricted area. After the verdict, Griffin told reporters outside the courthouse that he didn't want to go to jail but continued to peddle the false conspiracy theory that January 6th was a setup by the U.S. government. If this was a setup by the U.S. government, don't you think they would have come up with better charges than trespassing? Uh, probably, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, we'll get him. <laughs> one way or the other. We'll, we'll fix his boat. Yeah. We'll send him up for trespassing. <laughs> well, what's uh, what's um, surprising to me about some of these stories is I mean, people who engage in civil disobedience and in, 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 in get into this gray zone of, of uh, violence and then firmly into it, if you will, because there is sort of a continuum, obviously, with, as you do certain things. Presumably, once you go past just marching, you understand, as an adult, the decisions you're taking and the fact that they have consequences to your own individual liberty. You might be arrested. You might be prosecuted. You might actually spend some time in jail. What's sort of shocking here is to see these people turning, and, and, and some of them, because I think a lot of people are, you know, taking responsibility for their actions, and some proudly so, defiantly so. I mean, look at all the civil rights. Well, plenty of people broke yeah. the law in the civil rights there, and they said, well, I understand this is the consequence, and that's what I'm doing, and I'm, I can live with that. But what you're, not, what you're seeing here is, in too many instances, people sort of say, Oh, well, it was really nothing. It wasn't really nothing, it, especially what you described there, Tom, uh, beating police officers. That shows remarkable restraint from the Capitol Police, in my view. So you've you got to have some consequences here, but a certain cohort within this hundreds of, these hundreds of people who did these things, is, they're acting like, well, I should have gotten away with it. And, and that's not right. You know, there was a, a very interesting moment, and I was just reminded of it recently, um, that happened during the Black Lives Matter protests around the country. Uh, there was an interesting moment with our local county sheriff mm, yes. where he had yeah. pulled together uh, multiple police agencies from within Genesee County um, because of a march that was being held from downtown Flint out to, out to Flint Township, out, out one of the main thoroughfares there. And... Um, they had all their riot gear, and you know they were they were loaded for bear mark. And then at one point, the the sheriff confronts somebody at the at the head of the pack and says, "What do you want me to do?" And there was this magic moment where the protester said, "Walk with us." Mm. You know, in, instead of coming back with, you know. Um, but he did. He took off the, the ride right and, and And our guy, you know, the sheriff was smart enough to say, 
okay and you know he took off his helmet and and his riot gear and he kind of motioned to the other cops to do that and they turned around and they marched with him and and it made national news i mean it was uh, on a number of uh, networks and and so on but it was just such a great moment where the people involved where it could have been one of those things that escalated into something extremely violent but instead became a, a a real teaching moment because cooler heads prevailed on both sides well well that's right there's, and there's a, a there are problems on both sides of this you have all the stuff happening in portland and seattle and places like that and then and then the media acts as, as if nothing has happened so you know you you can't you can't deny the uh, the power of protests, but everybody's got to be very cognizant that cross lines. There's got to be accountability, and it has to be discussed. But we didn't discuss all too often uh, the property damage or the violence that was taking place on the left there. And you're right; that's a great story. I was not familiar with it because it it sort of says, okay, we're making our point here. We've got to have better policing. We've got to have uh, a whole host of things to make the society more just. But it was done in a way that prevented uh, an escalation that would have been, you know, maybe damaging. But it's also true on the January 6th stuff, really. Uh, certain lines were crossed. So those lines have to be enforced, in my view. And as we're noting, there, there were no riots in Flint. And I don't know, unlike other, other cities, there, were, there was no damage, no... No, no, no riots in the downtown or anything of that nature. As I think, as a result of that walk with me uh, movement, right? That's, it sounds like it was yeah. well handled. And same thing, by the way, Paul. Down here, Mississippi. Uh, now, maybe some of the people were feeling that if, if there was a police response, it would be overwhelming. But, but there were plenty of, uh, of demonstrations or marches at. Uh, but they were all quite low key, I would argue. They were all quite low key in terms of, of participation and people uh, making a point, but not doing it in a way where they were throwing bottles at, at courthouses or things like that. Right. And and you know it's interesting because uh, the civil rights movement, um, you know, it, you you could argue that this was like a kind of a resurgence, you know, this last couple of years of some of the things that we saw in the 60s, but the lessons learned in the 60s, the civil rights movement knows better how to peacefully demonstrate than any other cause. Because they right. have this, yeah. this practice, right. this experience. I'm not saying that some don't get out of hand. Of course they do. But by and large, it's pretty easy to put together a march and a demonstration without busting up City Hall. True. Well, yeah. Uh, no, I I agree with that. And um, even if you go back to Vietnam, I mean, look, I was a uh, high school age kid during Kent State. Uh, the country totally changed. The idea of the National Guards changed after the Guard killed those students in Kent State, which was what 1970, I think it was. Um, and it, there's been a real evolution in how you how you handle uh, demonstrations and what you do and what you don't do. And, uh, Paul, so is that, Paul oh, go ahead. refresh my memory. Was, um, was it um, 
Jan Worth Nelson from East Village Magazine here in Flint that was going to school at Kent State when that yes. happened. Yeah, yeah, Jan Jan was uh, was going to school there. In fact, I think she may have been working for the student newspaper at the time when those those events happened. She she wrote something. Um, wasn't wasn't there an anniversary of that just? Recently. Yeah, I think it was 50 years, and I yeah, think it was 1970. So Yeah, so it yeah. would have been 2020, and she yeah. wrote a, a brilliant reflection. She did. Um, for the local, uh, for her local publication. And yeah. It was, um, anyway, I, I just thought of that when you brought that up, Mark. And, um, let, me, uh, let me say one other thing. It's a little of the weeds, but the New York Times, they fired their executive editor and they, uh, you know, or the Tom, remember when Tom Cotton wrote a piece on saying, use the guard uh, on the, uh, in, in some of the George Floyd demonstrations. Remember that controversy? Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Well, in actual fact, the guards were probably better than the police because the guards all over the country learned from Kent State of what you do and what you don't do. Mm. Uh, whereas now the police are going through the same same process and sounds like a great job and in, in, in where you are but uh the guards weren't after kent state the national guards were pretty cautious of what how to handle demonstrations and stuff but anyway well democratic party officials charged with setting the party's 2024 presidential nominating process are circulating a draft plan that would place up to five states at the front of the calendar and would prioritize diverse battleground states that hold primaries, not caucuses. That would effectively end Iowa's status as the first state to vote since Iowa is no longer considered competitive and is required by current state law to hold caucuses. The draft plan obtained by CNN was sent Monday to members of the Democratic National Committee's Rules and Bylaws Committee ahead of a meeting next week. It was drafted by the committee's co-chairs James Roosevelt Jr. and Lorraine Miller. The Washington Post first reported the details of the draft plan. The co-chairs characterized the plan as a starting point for discussion ahead of months of meetings before the DNC, uh, DNC is expected to finalize its 2024 calendar this summer. How much impact does the order of the primaries have on the nomination process? I think a lot. Oh yeah, I can make a break and make a break in the candidate very early. I yeah, mean, if, you're, if you're expected to, to win Iowa and you don't, you look as the loser, or vice versa. If you're not expected to, and you come out first, uh, I mean, uh, I think one of the things that boosted uh, Barack Obama's chances when he first ran was that he, 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 I think, as I recall, he carried Iowa, which was very unexpected, and he would look like uh, a rising star at that point when he first ran. And, and you know, the, the Midwestern states has established the precedent of being kind of the middle of the road for the country. It is not influenced so much by the East Coast and so much by the yeah. West Coast, which is so uh, disruptive to the political process. And things are changing all the time. Nobody thinks the same way. Everybody has a view on every issue. But the Iowans and those Kansans and those people in the middle of the country, according to doctrine and the, the approach that politicians you, have used and political theorists have used, that the middle of the country has the most stable. But I think, I think it's a good point that maybe some of those atypical states like Iowa or New Hampshire yeah. do have some extra weight that maybe they don't quite deserve because they are first. Uh, 
I mean, they, neither of those, the ones I just mentioned, neither of those are truly typical states. They're a little unusual in various ways. So, but they do have extra clout because they're the first, uh, the first ones up in the in the primary season. When Barack Obama won that, that was a good indication that Barack Obama was going to be. Yeah, exactly. The, exactly, uh, right. exactly. You know, the Democrat Democratic candidate. Well, he because, became the guy to beat. You know, yeah. and, and it, and it, <laughs> in fact. Uh, so, Go go ahead, Mark. I'm curious. I, I thought yeah. about Mark when I when I read this. Yeah, so I, Tom first met me. Yeah, you been to Iowa. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's, I spent eight months contesting Iowa and New Hampshire, and I, I made a mistake by spending too much time in Iowa not being in New Hampshire, but in 2015. And those two states, I agree with the point of they're, they're no longer representative of the, of the country and the demographic, but there's a very important role that they play which is a vetting of candidates that will be totally lost. Because I was incredibly struck as I wandered around small towns in, or cities, rather, in, um, in Iowa and in New Hampshire at the caliber of the media and the officials. Um, and, and I was somebody who had been on the Washington scene and dealt with the major national publications. But you'd sit down and get questions in Waterloo, Iowa, from a local newspaper that were very good, and those states, they vet candidates, and they say, well, take a look at this guy. He's actually fairly substantive. Uh, my worry is that if you don't have that local voter-to-candidate uh, interactions, you will have already sort of sorted through the candidate field, and the only people who will have a shot will be the ones who already have established financial bases or political bases and I'm not sure that's a good thing for the country, just because uh, you know it'll it'll give you more of the same, if you if you will. So I like Iowa and New Hampshire as as first steps in a very important vetting process by the American people. That's, I've got to just say that. It allows for kind of personal person to person campaigning, whereas the if a state like you know New York or California were first, the it'll be only the folks who can buy ten million dollars worth of media time. We're going to That's get it, and it's those, you know, if you're wandering around Iowa and you're on the third event of the day and it's 6 p.m., you're, you're off script at that point. It's, that's, that's what happens. See, people are, people are real. It's not, uh, it's exactly right. It's not about buying commercial time or Facebook time. It's, it's about interacting with voters in a cafe or something like that, and that's, that's a different dynamic, and uh, the country needs it. Well, needs, there's still a role for that. Was it Tip O'Neill or Everett Dirksen who said uh, uh, all politics are retail? I think that was all the politics are local. I think it was well, local. It was this Tip O'Neill, I think. It was the one I, I re- then then it must it. have been okay. Dirksen that said uh, all politics are retail. Oh. Because I get those two confused because the, the quotes are so similar. Um, right. But I, when I was when I was reading that, I just I remembered what Mark said to me after his his brief uh, presidential bid, and he said, uh, "I I, I should have skipped uh, Iowa and started in New Hampshire." <laughs> <laughs> well, the tra- and they're two well, very they are two very different states. Uh, so, and by the way, everything you said is true, Tom. But the Republicans aren't uh, are aren't getting ready to ditch Iowa, at least as far as I know. It's really the, the Democrats, and I, I understand it. Maybe they'll be able to put Nevada in there first or something like that. Harry Reid, while he was still alive, was fighting to uh, get Nevada there first just because, you know, they got the big Hispanic population. It's a, it's a very different uh, 
mix than what you've got in Iowa. But uh, so there, there are issues on both sides here. But it just is going to make the place. It, it's going to just they do that. It's just going to make everything a little more corporate or big, big, uh, big time money. Well, Indiana Republican Governor Eric Holcomb on Monday vetoed a bill that would have prohibited transgender women and girls from competing on sports teams consistent with their gender at schools in the state, saying the legislation was too broadly written. The legislation, which cleared the state legislature earlier this month, states that a male based on a student's uh, biological sex at birth in accordance with the uh, student's genetics and uh, reproductive biology may not participate on an athletic team or sport designated under this section as being a female women's or girls athletic team or sport. The bill would also protect schools and athletic associations from liability for enforcing the legislation. But Holcomb said in a letter Monday, amidst the flurry of enthusiasm to protect the integrity and fairness of women's sports in our state, a worthy cause for sure, this bill leaves too many unanswered questions. The GOP governor specifically cited concerns about how the legislation would be applied consistently across the state, noted previous lawsuits challenging similar laws across the country, and touted Indiana's K-12 sports program as it stands. The debate over the inclusion of transgender athletes, particularly women and girls, has become a political flashpoint in recent in recent years, especially among conservatives. Is Holcomb risking his standing with uh, with his party? He could be, because remember, we we there's not a common denominator uh, in the country that says what a man and a woman is in this climate. And we have not all agreed that a man is a man who traditionally was considered a man in, in uh, the 16th century. Or a woman was a woman uh, that they considered a woman in 1660. You know, so today we have ideas of who men and women all over the place, and we don't agree anywhere. So there's no... Definition, even the dictionary has not caught up. So to take that kind of risk is kind of risky. I think Victor yeah. Borga was telling a story about his two male uncles, and and then he said, "Well, you know, we have to we have to be specific in Denmark because we have three sexes: male, female, and convertible." <laughs> well, um, you know, I know Eric. Eric was uh, Eric ran Mitch Daniels' campaign when Mitch ran uh, for um, for governor, and then he was sort of the political director, and, and then ultimately, you know, he ended up becoming governor when Pence uh, joined uh, the ticket. Uh, but I was surprised by this. I really was. And, and uh, but, you know, there's space, there's space for this, because no one, it's very hard to, it's very hard to um, quibble with Eric's conservative credentials, if you will. And this is the advantage. He's a second-term governor. He's uh, he's uh, uh, term term limited. So um, I don't know what this signals about his future. But I I did find it intriguing. But everything you guys said is correct. Uh, you know, you had this. Uh, you saw the uh, the gal from Penn uh, won national NCAA yeah. swim championship, and I 
I find this area tough. I'd, I'd rather see, instead of the courts getting into this, I'd rather see local jurisdictions and sports bodies. If the NC2A said, hey, you, you know, you can't, uh, certain things can't happen, fine. I'd rather see that being dealt with than, than everything being dealt with by, by statute. So I, I understand what Eric what Eric did there, but I, uh, I I do want competition and other things to be fair. Yeah, and I think that maybe there were some things in that bill that just were not easily applicable. You know, one thing that worries me about that bill, I think, and some a number of similar ones, is that it opens the door to lawsuits from citizens. I'm thinking of the Texas yeah. abortion we, we've bill. We've got to take a break here. We'll be back with what? the actual okay. X-Files in just a minute. Sumner show right now. And now, and now too, and even now. It's 2022, and this year the Tom Sumner Program begins its 14th year. It would not be here without support through the years from individuals and organizations like these. Seth David Radwell. East Village Magazine. Flint Institute of Music. Hello, I'm Maestro Ricky DeMeg. Flint Community School. MTA Flint. Flint Comics and Entertainment. Hamity Complete Food Center. The Flint River Watershed Coalition. W.H. Weiscarver. The Genesee County Road Commission. Long Museum Auto Fair. Thomas Appliance. The Genesee Health Plan. Flip Flip Technology. My Community College. It's Pure Michigan. Friends on Facebook have also helped by contributing to the show's online fundraisers two or three times a year. If you would like to help the Tom Sumner program continue to thrive by becoming a sponsor, send an email of interest to tom at tomsumnerprogram.com. Add your name to the list of supporters, past, present, and future. Right now, the COVID-19 vaccines are available to millions of Americans, and soon, they will be available to everyone. This vaccine means hope. It will protect you and those you love from this dangerous and deadly disease. I want to go back to work and I want to be able to move around. To visit with Michelle's mom, to hug her and see her on her birthday. You know what I'm really looking forward to is going to opening day in Texas Rangers Stadium with a full stadium. We've lost enough people and we've suffered enough damage. In order to get rid of this pandemic, it's important for our fellow citizens to get vaccinated. I'm getting vaccinated because we want this pandemic to end as soon as possible. So we urge you to get vaccinated when it's available to you. So roll up your sleeve and do your part. This is our shot. Now it's up to you. Do you ever feel like you need an attitude adjustment? Are you wishing there was a magic pill or a new app for your mobile device? Why don't you try live local music? Music can make you dance, bring back fond memories, inspire you to be more creative, whether you attend a child's school concert or recital, go to a local symphony concert, visit local bars and restaurants that feature dance music, sing-along piano, or jazz and blues. Music could be just what you're looking for. Supporting live local music is more than a way to support your local artists and economy. It's a great way to improve your own quality of life. Support live local music. This message is brought to you from the Tom
Yellow? Honey, it's Dana. Dana? Something must be wrong. She never calls. Dana? What's wrong? Take this down. She's stranded on the side of the road. I'm not. She needs us to send her an Amazon gift card. I don't. And she'll use it to pay the tow truck driver. I won't. Mom, Dad, that's not me. It's a scam. Scam artists will call, text, or email people trying to get them to buy a gift card from Amazon or some other company. And then ask for the gift card number over the phone. Remember, gift cards are for gifting, not for paying people. If someone asks for payment using a gift card from Amazon, Target, or some other store, it's a scam. Hang up or delete the message. These scammers are awful. Wish they'd pretend to be her brother sometimes. Be nice to hear from him. For more tips on avoiding scams, visit michigan.gov ag for your connection to consumer protection. I get the uneasy feeling Rod Serling is behind one of those doors. Rod Serling. Rod Serling. What's this, the Twilight Zone? Where is everybody? I would have been headed for the Twilight Zone. Twilight Zone. If I go any lower, I'll be in the Twilight Zone. All right. Oh, but Jethro's right at home in the Twilight Zone. <laughs> I'm in the Twilight Zone. Now, having made this little jaunt into the Twilight Zone... I got a feeling something strange is about to happen. In the Twilight Zone. Hi, this is Ann Serling, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. Welcome back, everybody, as we uh, move into the final segment of today's edition of uh, the Armchair Politics on the Tom Sumner Program, a segment where we look at those weird and wacky stories I like to call the X-Files. And um, these are the actual X-Files, as, as Paul alluded <laughs> earlier. Some of, the, some of the regular headlines are beginning to sound more and more like X-Files. But uh, here, we'll start with this one. An Alabama man who called a wrecker service asking to have a 70-ton crane pulled out of the woods is now charged with stealing the heavy machinery. According to sheriff's officials, the owner of a towing service contacted the uh, Chilton County Sheriff's Office on Monday saying the man had called claiming someone gave him the crane and he wanted it removed so he could sell it for scrap. Um, The wrecker service owner uh, recalled moving the same crane a few years before and contacted its owner who denied having given it away. (laughs) The towing operator then called law enforcement. The man who wanted the crane moved fled before officers arrived, driving the rig into a ditch where it became stuck. The 26-year-old Clanton man was arrested Tuesday on a probation violation and first-degree theft charges. Court records didn't include the name of a defense attorney who could speak on his behalf. Do you think that the uh, suspect called the tow truck before or after he drove this giant crane into the ditch? How do you steal a 70-ton crane? I don't know. Yeah, that must have been a drag line because uh, usually the bigger cranes that they have now have these great big wheels and they can go anywhere and the buckets can lift the back end out and the hoe. They can do all kinds of incredible things. Well, this must have been one of those older types. I don't know, but if he'd gotten away with it, I got my eyes on a backhoe uh, down, <laughs> down by I-69. That, uh, um, I'm glad to hear this. I've got three of those big cranes in my backyard. I could use them for <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> 
there's all those army tanks in front of the VFW halls around town, too. So yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, a dog in North Carolina is looking for a new home after his previous owners dumped him at an animal shelter because they said they feared he might be gay. <laughs> Ooh. Don't say it. Fezco, I heard that. Fezco, who it. is described as a four- to five-year-old dog of an unknown breed, was recently dropped off at the Stanley County uh, Animal Protective Services in uh, Albemarle. The reason? Fesco apparently humped another male dog, and the dog's <laughs> owners assumed the canine was a gay nine and didn't didn't want him around so they left him at the shelter now the shelter wants to find fesco a new home and says he likes people and other animals according to a report thursday on uh, charlotte uh, uh, cw affiliate wccb although scientific american notes that homosexual behavior has been observed in more than 1500 animal species the ASPCA says that it's common for dogs, dogs to mount and thrust against other animals, people, and objects, including wadded-up blankets, dog beds, and toys, <laughs> as a form of masturbation or as a response to stress. HuffPost reached out to the shelter to find out if Fesco had been adopted, but no one immediately responded. Do you think there might be uh, a room for Fesco at the, uh, at the YMCA? <laughs> Could well be. <laughs> yes. Uh, well, I can tell you, we have two cats with us that had the same issue until they got fixed around here so, a few months back. So it's not that unusual. Well, you got to watch your legs, too. That's also true. <laughs> yeah, that's right, Henry. Yeah. Well, Fabian Birch and Ben Stewart, both 14, weren't happy when their parents demanded they stop using their phones after 9 p.m. each night, so they formed a plan to try and trick their parents into thinking they'd given up their gadgets without actually doing so. The teens padded out their phone cases with paper and cellotaped a photo of an iPhone on top before willingly handing them uh, over at 8.59 p.m. Their sneaky plan seemed to be working for a few hours with 50-year-old Rebecca and 47-year-old Andrew not suspecting anything at first. However, they later became suspicious of how eager the boys had been to give up their phones. Rebecca, who works as a taxi driver, noticed a piece of tape sticking out of one of the cases a few hours later and hailed the boys a pair of geniuses. She continued, They were like partners in crime trying to pull the wool over our eyes. There's never a dull moment in our house. When I realized, I just thought, oh my God, and I couldn't be mad. I thought it was genius and brilliant. I had nothing but respect for it, and I was proud that they'd actually put effort into something and used their initiative. And this isn't the first time Fabian and Ben have been able to swerve a screen ban as they already hacked into their parents' screen controlling software. <laughs> but should their ingenuity get them off the hook? Mm. Mm. No, uh, phones have specific regulations that you gotta follow. And parental rights, uh, parents are responsible for the action 
I'm certain of their kids. There, there are regulations there that could be violated. Yeah, she shouldn't get entirely off the hook, I don't think. Yeah. Yeah, I think Mom caved a little easy. I think she was yeah. a little, little too impressed with their ingenuity. True. Unbelievable story. True. Though. Yeah. It, it is a funny idea. Um, yeah, I like those. Uh, what was the the one? Oh, um, speaking of ingenuity, um, we had a, a popular local politician who had a stunt that he used to pull on uh, election day. I've told this story a number of times. Paul is probably it's here. Right. <laughs> Um, but what he would do is he would have one of his campaign workers go over to the opposition's campaign headquarters in the wee hours of the morning on election day and break a key off in the lock. Oh, yeah, <laughs> that's right. <laughs> <laughs> and, yes. And the campaign workers would get there and they couldn't, you know, they couldn't get a key in the lock and they couldn't get the key that was in there out of the lock and they had to call the locksmith and so they were late getting to the to the polls. I thought that was one of the great uh, grassroots <laughs> yeah. campaign that's stunts right. of all time. Anyway. But do you think that they should be rewarded for that behavior? Um. I think I think in some cases they got a few more votes. <laughs> oh, probably, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think if they got caught they would have gone to jail, but uh And they and they got remembered on the X Files. That's that's worth something. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, there you go. There you go. Well that wraps it up for uh, the X Files and today's edition of Armchair Politics. Uh we have about oh, just under two minutes left if anybody has any uh any quick yeah, final I have thoughts. A- I want to say one uh, a quick thing. Going back to the Holcomb veto on, on the bill you talked yeah. about, the system is working. Uh, Eric made a decision there. That's what this country's about. Uh, remember Asa Hutchison? He's the governor down uh, in Oklahoma, and uh, or, or is it Arkansas? Maybe. But uh, anyway, he vetoed a bill that said uh, that you know kids can't have gender reassignment uh, surgery. He vetoed it. It was ultimately enacted. But the governors have to do what they think is right. It's not. And I agree with that. I agree with it totally. And I give them credit for really leaning against what, you know, what would be an easy, you know, political thing to do in in light of making more sensible laws. We need more of that. And and Democrats need to be doing that to their side, too. And uh, in California or New York or Massachusetts or, you know, places like that. Anyway, that's it. It's, It's good if local authority is being exercised at all levels of our system. Well, that wraps it up for uh, today's edition of uh, the Tom Sumner Program and in uh, particular armchair politics this last two hours. I want to thank Mark Everson. Uh, Mark, it's always such a pleasure when you join us uh, for these roundtables. Well, thank you so so much. And, and Mark, I want to say how awesome you are for both Paul and me. We learned so much from you. And we always appreciate having you consequence, here, Mark. We uh, caution ourselves to be more balanced in our ideas and more just. And and Mark, well, thank I'm, you. I'm glad you were able to travel safely. <laughs> yeah, I am too. Yeah, yeah. glad glad you the worst of the. I bad don't weather. want you making some great tribute to Mark Everson, the late, late Mark Everson, in your next show. <laughs> no. <laughs> well, but but if that sad occasion occurs, you can count on me to do just that. <laughs> yeah, you can be on the uh, and, very good gentleman. Yeah. And and to uh, 
Our roundtable regulars, Paul Rosicki and Henry Hatter, thank both of you. It's always, always great to be here. Have a good evening. Thank All you. Right. Take care. Good evening. Bye-bye. And with that, see you tomorrow. Good night, everybody. The Tom Sumner Program is a live variety show. We want to acknowledge all of our guests who play such an important role in the show and our cavalcade of cohorts from coast to coast for their regular contributions. Most of the musical accompaniment was provided by people in or from the Flint area. Many of the pre-recorded portions of the Tom Sumner program are made possible by Flint's own Steve McComb and Pencil Sketch Recording in Nashville, Tennessee. If you have comments, questions or suggestions about the show, find us on Facebook. This is Prue Clearwater. Join us next time for another edition of the Tom Sumner Program. And thanks for listening.